So I want to start with you doing a little bit of the work. I want you to think of the wisest person you know in life, someone who you admire, someone who I like to say even at 56, I want to be when I grow up, okay? Someone that you just really admire and you think is living life well. And I want to ask you three questions about this person. Are they rich? Do they have a PhD? Or do they have just a stellar relational world? Are they rich? Do they have a PhD? Or is their life characterized by good relationships? When these people come into my mind, and believe me, there's still people I want to be when I grow up. I want to live like them. I want to follow them as they follow Jesus. None of them are rich. None of them, maybe one, has a PhD. But when I look at their lives, they all have an impeccable relational world, as impeccable as it can get. The reason I want to bring this to your mind is because relationships are the fabric of life. They really are. It is the bedrock and the foundation of all that we do. The problem is we get stuck in relationships, don't we? They're messy. They're complicated. The other problem is we have too many of them, right? I have to be a pastor and a congregant. I have to be a dad and a son. I've got to be a colleague and a boss. I have to be a coach. I have to have all these relational hats on. And to navigate that for a long season of life is not easy. Jesus was the master of relationships. I challenge you every once in a while to read the gospel through a different lens. Read it through a relational lens and look at Jesus. He was the master of relationships. We're in a series called Unstuck. We're trying to spend the early parts of 2019 looking at those areas we might be stuck in, right? doesn't mean we're in sin. It just means we got stuck somehow. Uh, We're still putting the same energy, the same effort in the life, we're just seeing limited results, little fruit in some sub-areas of our life. This may be going on in your relational world. Some of the emotions that swirl around when you're stuck are feelings of sadness or loss, fatigue or indifference, uh, anxiety and fear always playing there. There's a wide range of emotions. I want to make one thing clear. No one likes being stuck. It's a crappy feeling, isn't it? Uh, Think about the last time you were stuck in traffic. Now, I'm not talking about five, ten minutes. I'm talking about one of those deals on a highway where like the people are getting out of their cars and eating a sandwich and this is going to be hours, you know, that's stuck. Or have you ever been to a movie theater where all the seats are taken and they put you in that god-awful front row and you're stuck there trying to watch this movie on a screen? Uh, My stepdad was a landscaper and when you turned 13, you worked in the family business. And my dad wasn't into what landscapers do today, like they descend on your house with nine guys. He split everybody up. So what he would do is he dropped several people off here and go to another house. So one afternoon, he drops me off at a house. I climb the ladder on the roof. He takes the ladder. I'm going to clean gutters, and he's going to go to another job. Now, in the afternoon, that's code for he's going to the bar to drink. And uh, I was on that roof in an hour and literally sat on that roof for another hour and a half. I watched the family come home. It got dark, and I was stuck on that roof. Okay? That's a crappy feeling, right? So nobody wants to be stuck. Jesus knew we would get stuck in relationships. Uh, He knows what we're made of. Again, he knows they're messy. He says something profound. I struggled with this one for years. It's right in the Sermon on the Mount. In the midst of all this great teaching, Jesus says this uh, in verse 21, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Now, that was part of the Ten Commandments. But he goes on, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, he's getting to the heart of it, 
without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, and this is what's profound, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, I don't know how practical this could be, but I always wonder why Jesus taught this. And here's why I wonder, because God invented the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. This wonderful place where people would come and they would offer sacrifices to God and they would give up their first fruits and they would sing songs and, you know, it was a wonderful experience as they would gather at the temple. And now all of a sudden Jesus is saying, no, you know, you leave your gift there. If there's something wrong, go make it right. And of course, as believers now who live in the new covenant, we understand what God's saying here. Even in the Old Testament, it was never about ritual. It was always about relationship. See, man is incurably religious. Incurable. You know, man would love to make a monument of something and then make a pilgrimage there more than he would ever want to live in communion of God. It just feels easier and better for some reason. And God never wanted that. In fact, the prophet Micah, God says, do you think I need 10 rivers of oil or 10,000 lambs? It's like this hyperbole of exaggeration. God's saying, look, I don't need all that. All this is is really about people. Last week we talked about work and rest. And, you know, the rest was a wonderful thing for the Jewish people as a nation. The problem is the Pharisees came up with 480 laws on how to keep a Sabbath day, and it was no longer a day of rest. Jesus said man wasn't made for the Sabbath. He wasn't made for that ritual. The ritual was made for man to enjoy and to feel the fabric of life. And it was the same with the sacrificial system. Therefore, that gift you're putting on the altar, it was prescribed by God. It's good. It's right. But people are more important. Now, I used to be kind of ticked off when I was a younger pastor when people would get up and move in a service, right? I thought it was rude, right? It didn't really bother me, but it probably bothered other people. And I thought, geez, if they have to go to the bathroom, couldn't they go to the bathroom before? And maybe they're leaving because they don't like the message. And I just didn't like it. And then one day I read this verse, and it dawned on me, we have a more spiritual church than I ever imagined. As I'm teaching, the Holy Spirit is working. These people are getting convicted, and they're leaving and getting up to go make things right with someone they've wronged. And I realized our church was way more mature than I thought. Little naive, but that's how I cured myself. (laughs) Why did Jesus say this? Again, he knows how fast relationships go south. Uh, How many people does it take to have a problem? Yeah, two. Not one, two. Usually, you like you. You get along with you. In fact, you agree with you most of the time. When you go out to eat, you don't get in an argument with you. You go where you want. All it takes is two, right? Now, it's not in the Bible, but I swear Adam and Eve must have had some amazing fights, right? You know, she's not this woman who goes out and jacks up the credit card. She goes out and makes the worst decision of all time, right? Like, the entire human race has fallen, and animals are eating each other. I mean, this is a bad deal. Adam's coming home with thorns and thistles. The kids are screaming. Life is totally unturned. And here's the problem. They know the other side. And they must have had some bang-up arguments. And then they have kids, and their kids kill each other. And it's literal, right? Cain kills Abel. And you read Genesis, and you know there's a God because he doesn't hide anything. 
This is the most dysfunctional group that's ever lived, and God's in the midst of them. So God's not afraid of our messiness. He's really not. When Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, a thousand times yes. See, here's what God knows. We need each other. We need community. We can't make it alone. Proverbs 18 says, the man who moves to isolation, he's in big trouble. That's where the enemy wants you. That's where Eve was. We were born for community. Uh, if I could rearrange Jesus' words without it being blasphemy, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his marriage? What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his family? What would it profit a, a man to gain the entire world and lose all his friends? See, that's what it breaks down to. Uh, at the core of what it means to be human is to crave intimacy. Uh, to crave intimacy with another human being. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of intimacy, think of sex. And that's, that's good and bad, right? Sex is a physical act between a man and a woman where we can see that. But intimacy goes to every level. Dallas Willard uh, probably gave the best definition of intimacy I ever heard, two words, shared experience. Dallas Willard believed intimacy was shared experience. So I want you to think, just real quick, think of the five great experiences of your life, right? So everybody's going to put you like the day you were married, the day your child was born, and once you get past that, there's some others. When I made the basketball team in high school, oh my gosh, I can still remember the day. Uh, when I turned 50, my son and some of my friends took me to St. Andrews, uh, close as an adult can get to Christmas playing golf in St. Andrews, Scotland, right? And I can name five things. Think of yours, and now when you think of them in your mind, delete all the people. What would it be like? What would it be like if the people didn't exist? No one wants to golf alone. No one wants to bowl alone. No one wants to really do anything alone. Because by nature, we crave intimacy. It's, it's one of life's main ingredients. We crave shared experience. We crave experiences where not only do we do these things together, but we are somehow beginning to understand who we are. Everybody wants to be known, and we want to know about others. We want to love and be loved. This is the fabric of life, the fabric of community. For intimacy to thrive and happen, several things have to be in place. Number one, it has to be mutual. This is very important. Uh, God is the initiator of a relationship with man. Uh, I don't want to break it to you today, but none of you found God. Last time I checked, he was never lost, right? We were lost. But God is the initiator, right? Man sins in the garden. God makes animal skins. God, all through Scripture, is the initiator of a relationship with man. But once we come in the relationship with God, this is amazing. God wants to be sought. Jesus said, if you knock, it'll be open to you. If you seek, you will find. See, God's not in, in, into a situation where five minutes before we leave the house, we throw a prayer north. That's not a relationship. God is looking for deep, intimate relationship with his creation. And for relationship to be intimate, it has to be a two-way street. In, in the relationships I have where there have been breaches, it's because I thought I was the initiator all the time or the other person thought that about me. I began to realize there are some friends that I have, and, and let's look at it this way. If you're married, there's intimacy. If you have children, there's intimacy. 
Gordon McDonald said at our retreat two years ago, every man should have five capital F friends. Five capital F friends, five people you can be intimate with, and then there's sub-friendship. So we're not talking about intimacy with every human being. But there came a, a stretch in my life with people that I was intimate with where I began to realize I'm the initiator of everything we do. Every text, every email, every vacation, everything we do, I initiate. And then I found out there were people that thought that about me. If that's going on, there can't be intimacy. And I had to navigate some of those things, and maybe you do too. Second thing that needs to happen for intimacy to take, pl take place is presence and time. Presence and time. Now this is getting hard in our culture, right? Uh, we don't sit on front porches anymore because we have central air. Uh, we've built these castles and with moats in them, so we don't even see people anymore. And We have cell phones. Jesus was the master at this. So I'll ask you a question. Uh, what's more important, task or people? It's more important. So all the spiritual people just said, people are more important, because that's got to be the right answer, right? Well, if you're fighting a fire, I'll argue the task is more important. And if you're throwing a party, I'll argue the people are more important. Jesus knew how to put them together. He had a mission, right? He had a vision statement. He had something to accomplish. He had a task. Son of Man came to save those who were lost. But he had this magnificent way of being with people, especially the 12. He would get around fires with them. They'd eat common meals. Uh, he did common things so much to the fact he got a, a reputation of being a wine-bibber and a glutton, and he's a friend of sinners, right? Uh, Jesus took long walks with them, and he got bo in boats. They had shared experience. Things going right, things going wrong. For years, we took our kids to Willow Valley in Lancaster. And we would get on a bus, and we'd tour Amish County. Mennonite driver with a long beard would uh, tell us how the Amish lived, and he always ended every phrase by saying, it's giving them the results they're looking for. So we would look out the window, and there would be a dad plowing with his son, and he'd say, now, that's a rudimentary tractor he's on, and if he had a tractor that we all know and understand, he could plow way more ground but he'd rather plow less ground and be with his son all day. And then he used the phrase, it's given them the results he's looking for. See, and that's what presence and time does. It gives you the results you're looking for. You're never going to be intimate with someone if everything's jammed in and everything's rushed. And then the final thing for intimacy to happen, there has to be mutual trust. Uh, we're learning on... Wednesday nights that God can be trusted, Romans 8. There's no condemnation of those who are in Christ. There's no separation. In other words, what we've committed to God, he's keeping till the final day. Well, somehow in a relationship, you've got to get there, right? You've got, you got to get to a place where you know those people don't share what you share with them. And they've got your back, so forth and so on. Can I give you the benefits of living like this? It's amazing. And unfortunately, this is reserved only when we go to weddings, and it's really not a wedding scripture, it applies, but it applies much more. In Ecclesiastes 4, 7, Solomon says, then I returned and I saw another vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, so it's not just marriage. And yet there's no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. He never asked, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? Well, watch where this is going. 
Solomon said, this is a vanity. It's a grave misfortune. And then there's the verse you all know. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But to woe to him who falls alone, for there's no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can anyone be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And then with Jesus in the middle, a threefold, threefold cord can never be broken. By the way, this is where men get stuck. Men my age. We're going to talk about this on the retreat all weekend. Here's where men get stuck, and maybe women, it probably applies. So at some point in your life, you get married. At some point in your life, you have a child. The minute that child comes out, there is this, I don't know how to explain it, overwhelming sense of, I own this. I, I've got to protect this, care for it. And so here's what men do. They spend all their life raising, providing for this entity called a family, right? Meanwhile, they're building a business, and even that's for the family. Uh, I'm building a church, right? And you're doing all this building as a man. Maybe it applies to a woman. And then you get to 50 years old, and everybody waves you off and says, thanks, we're good, we're on our own, thanks for all you've done. And men look around and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I getting on airplanes, traveling to, around the world? Why am I building? In other words, men run out of purpose, Solomon said. Now, the problem is he looked at life under the sun. Later, he looks at life under heaven and says, wait a second. God has made everything wonderful in his time. There's seasons. And what we're going to try to get men unstuck this weekend is saying, you've got to figure out the next season of what God's calling you to do. But Solomon said this is a grave misfortune. And this is how people get stuck. But two are better than one, and a threefold cord can never be broken. So the payoff on community, the payoff on intimacy is large. We all need it. It is very important. So what I want to do in the rest of the message, I want to give you three of my learnings. Remember, I am not an expert at this. I fail miserably at this. I have learned from past pain and experience. And I'm just another beggar showing you where to find bread. The one thing is I've learned. The one thing is I don't like being stuck. So I'm going to give you three things in my relational world that, that have unstuck me at times. And if I ever get stuck again, maybe I'll have more lessons to learn. If they can help you, great. The first one is found in Luke 19. It's a story of Zacchaeus. And most of you know one thing about Zacchaeus. What was it? He's a wee little man. He's vertically challenged, right? And one day Jesus comes to his village and he climbs into a tree. And if you've ever seen a sycamore tree, they're low to the ground so he can get in there. There's another reason why he's in that tree. Sycamore trees have giant leaves and you can hide in them. Now, why would Zacchaeus want to hide? He's a tax collector. Tax collectors are despised. They were so despised, they were men who turned their back on the Jews and collected and extorted money for Rome. Um, they were so heinous that the rabbis taught, this wasn't true, but the rabbis taught, even though lying was a sin, if you lied to a tax collector, it was okay, right? That's how despised they were. They were unclean, you couldn't touch them, you'd walk on the other side of the street, you could make jokes about them. Um, when I was a kid, you know, we had mom jokes, right? Like, your mom wears combat boots and all, and uh, we have one, your mom's so low she could play handball on the curb, right? 
Zacchaeus was lower than that. Okay, I just got to set up how bad this guy was. But Jesus comes to town. And everybody thinks he gets in the tree because he's small. That might be the reason. You have to remember, when Jesus came to town as a rabbi who was healing people and feeding 5,000, this was a big deal. There was no competition. You couldn't go see Pavarotti at night or watch Netflix. There was basically nothing to do. So the whole town would come out. And he gets up in the tree, and he's hiding, but he wants to see Jesus for some reason. And Jesus does something remarkable. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. Now the first thing that jumps out at me, I don't know the last time he ever heard his name mentioned. It was probably mostly an expletive when someone addressed him. For the first time, somebody's saying his name. And then Jesus, by saying, I'm going to your house, I want to be intimate with you, because in that culture, to dine meant intimacy. The people are aghast. Don't they know he's a sinner? And then Zacchaeus makes this declaration. I'm going to give half of my money to the poor, and anybody I wronged, I'm going to restore fourfold. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Bob, shouldn't this be like unstuck in our finances class? No, I want to tell you what Zacchaeus is doing. And I swear Dickens got Scrooge from this. I really do. Bill Wilson was a lifelong drunk who became a Christian. When God set him free, he started a program called the 12-step program, which many of you know and has freed tons of people. He named it the 12 steps after the 12 apostles. Many of the steps are biblical, and many churches use them. Uh, I used to go to AA meetings with my dad. You know, hi, I'm Bob, an alcoholic. That was my dad's name. I wasn't, but uh, that's one of the steps. And then most people wouldn't know the subs. I had to go look it up, the sub-steps. There's a quirky step that says that I will make a list of all the persons I've wronged and make amends wherever possible. I'll make a list of all the persons wronged and make amends where possible. One of the things I've learned is when I have a rift with someone, it's probably a sign I should start praying for them. And what I found out, it's an easy step, right? I'm in my devotional world, and I just pray for this person. Usually God brings it up, right? It's very easy. What I found is when I start praying for them, it leads to action. A text, an email, an invite, right? If we allow the Holy Spirit to have his searchlight, and we get a little more intentional, like writing a list, maybe of people that have, relationship is fractured, or it's teetering, or maybe somebody ghosted you, or... Uh, that's a millennial term for they stop talking to you, right? Here's the question. Does your life pass the supermarket test? The supermarket test is I'm out shopping, and while I'm going up an aisle, is there anyone in my life, if they came around the corner towards me, that I would die a thousand deaths or, like, run to the sardine aisle or something? Is there anybody in my world, Right? Now, the challenge isn't, I've got to go make everything right. Remember, can I make a list of persons that I have wronged and make amends where possible? Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes, and again, here's where things get messy, where we can't undo some things that have been done. All I'm saying is, are there areas where God can intervene by his spirit and just bring these things up to us. Maybe we don't act now. Maybe it's a long time from now. The reason I bring this up, I uh, had 
lunch with a couple on Friday. Uh, they just got finished with a nine-year stint in Kenya where they worked for World Vision. And they now have a marriage ministry, and it's ironic because they were at each other's throats early in their marriage, and they share with me if, if any couple would get divorced, it would be them. But God rebuilt their marriage, and as I listened to their story, I said, you know, your story sounds like what I share with married couples. It only takes one person to break. If one person breaks or bends, it seems like God could heal the whole thing. And where I'm going in this one is Romans 12, 18. The NIV says, if it is possible, and sometimes it's not, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. As much as depends on you. In other words, if there's anything you can do, take that step. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message said, don't insist on getting even. This is the same verse. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of the rest. I think it's a major step to understand that the Holy Spirit just wants us to take a step because it releases us, right? Sometimes we're a prisoner of our own devices. Here's a second thing I've learned. Whenever there's a breach in a relationship, somewhere anger has got involved, right? Uh, I remember a family... Uh, that I would go over to their house and cringe, right? Just screaming and yelling. And I grew up in that environment. It would, just, it would just break my spirit. And I brought it up to one, to that family one time. They're like, but we don't scream and yell at each other. In other words, they had done it so long, it was a way of life. Uh, Anger is an interesting thing. It's given by God. It's a, it's a natural emotion. God is angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. Uh, we're told to anger and sin not. But remember I shared Cain and Abel? You know, Cain was angry at his brother. Cain's the first person to have FOMO, right? He looked over the fence, he saw that God liked what Abel was doing, and he got jealous, and he killed his brother. Anger is when I feel that justified that someone's wronged me and justice needs to be served, right? And I begin to do this role-playing in my mind and all. Ephesians 4.26 says, don't sin by letting anger get control of you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Anger gives the devil a mighty stronghold. Um, this applies to marriage. This applies to every relationship. Not letting the sun go down on your anger. Now, in the early years of marriage, you can get away with it, right? You know, you're still physically wonderfully attracted and everything's new. And, you know, uh, small problems become little exits, right? They get overlooked, but it's okay. But 10 years go by and you take all these little exits and you might have one big exit. And it's the same thing in relationships, right? We can have these little exits that one day can become a big exit. I've been part of these type of things. One of the great things we can do is not let anger get the best of us. I don't know if I've had a total breakthrough in this area, but one day God kind of moved me along the playing field when he said to me, that he would hold everyone accountable, I no longer have to. In other words, we're all gonna give account one day, but I don't have to be the keeper of rights and wrongs. Uh, God used John Maxwell, really, to hit this home to me. Uh, John, via video, was at our men's conference one year, and he did an illustration I've never forgotten. He went like this, and he stayed like this for like 10 minutes. And what he said was, as human beings, we have uphill desires and dreams, 
but we have downhill proclivities, downhill habits. We have upward dreams and downhill habits. And it was so groundbreaking for me when I saw that illustration. And then he went on to say this, and I try and live by it, and I break it every day, but I got to tell you, I'm trying. John said, our goal in life should be to connect with people, not correct people. Our goal should be to connect with people, not correct them. And this is hard. It really is. Because as a parent, I'm responsible for my children. I, you know, I have a spouse. I'm a boss. I have 23 employees that work for me. But every day, my prayer is, God, please help me connect. And I really want to stop correcting. And the last one, <laughs> man, I'll probably go to my grave struggling with this. Someone framed up this word. <laughs> it really, it's sticky. That if we're going to have a proper relational world, we have to be willing to go through the tunnel of chaos. That sound really bad? Does that sound like something you have no interest in doing? See, what we do as Christians, and I do it a lot, is there's something in my relational world that's bothering me. But guess what I do? I never address it. Christians should be truth tellers more than anyone, but we withhold truth most of the time. A lot of it's fear, a lot of it's nobody's gonna like me anymore. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons. And so what we do is we play this game. God will speak to them. Like they're going on the retreat this weekend, or you know, maybe when Pastor Bob talks about this, they'll get it, or they'll go to some conference. And we really rob people of becoming who they need to be. See, God is in the change business, but he uses the human instrument. You might be the instrument God wants to use to help bring somebody to change. I'll give you a biblical example, King David. In King David's relational world, they let this human being go an entire year without telling him there was sin in his life. And he's writing these psalms where there's like rottenness in his bones, all because he's the king, the emperor has no clothes, and nobody can tell him. Nobody in his inner circle, nobody's intimate with David until Nathan gets the guts. And the end of it is restoration that would have never happened just with God and David. It took a human being. For many of us, we have elephants in our relational rooms. Things we're afraid to dress. The tunnel of chaos is when you're willing to go through the muck and the mire, and just when you think you've done it all, say the last 10%. You know, a lot of us, we get in the tunnel, and then we want to kind of retreat, and if you go the last 10%, you just get it all out, really good things will happen. Again, I'm getting better at this. I am in no way an expert. But I think this can go long and far, and like anything, it might have bad results before it has good results. These are some of the things that I've learned, but I think I've learned one other key thing. In our relational world, when things go awry, many of them can be recoverable, right? In other words, none of them are you know, a terrible thing in the end. But when we get to the marriage relationship, it supersedes all other relationships because probably only with a spouse have we ever said the words, till death do us part. And I want to say this because it's very important. I've been saying in the series, if you're stuck, it may not be because of sin. Sometimes it is. And there is a temptation when you are stuck in life 
to start to go outside the boundaries of God to get unstuck. And the reason you do is because anything new feels good. Uh, you watch people who see no purpose in life and then they start dating someone and they don't need God anymore because there's like a flash fire in this love relationship or having a child or starting a new job or anything new has a short burn to it but has real dangerous results. Ken Davis did this at a conference I was at. He's one of the funniest men I know. It was side splitting. It will not be when I do it. <laughs> Ken Davis said it happened at a traffic light near the edge of town. A man gunned the engine of his huge Harley Davidson motorcycle as he waited for the light to change. You might have been tempted to stare at this guy and he would have enjoyed it. A filthy rag was fastened around his head and from beneath it a matted tangle of oily gray hair spilled down the back of his leather jacket. Images of skulls and bones leered from his clothing and his clothes and his bike bore the emblem of a black menacing spider. As he waited at the light, an elderly man pulled up in a light lime green moped beside him. The ringy-ding-ding of the moped was drowned out by the roaring thunder of the Harley. Boy, that's some motorcycle you got there, the old man croaked. Mind if I take a closer look? Scowling, be scowling from behind his oily beard, the biker gave him the once-over. If it turns you're a crank, old-timer, he said, go ahead. The old man was a little farsighted, but he wanted to take in all the scenery. So he leaned his face right over the bike and examined every inch. Looking up after a while, the old man grinned and said to the biker, I'll bet that motorcycle goes fast. But no sooner were the words out of his mouth that the light changed. The biker thought he'd show the old geezer what a real chopper could do. He gave it full throttle, and within 30 seconds, the speedometer read 199 miles per hour. He chuckled with satisfaction. Suddenly, he noticed a dot in his rearview mirror, a dot that was growing larger. Something was gaining on him. What could it be? He slowed down to get a better look, and whatever the thing was, it flashed past him so fast he couldn't identify it. The thing disappeared over the horizon, whipped around, and came right back at him. As it passed, he recognized the rider. It was the old man, green, old man on the lime green moped. How could this be? The biker took another look into his rearview mirror. There was the speck again, coming back his way and getting larger. The biker tried to outrun it, but he couldn't. It was a moot point, for in seconds, the moped slammed into the Harley-Davidson. The collision destroyed both bikes. You could hear it for miles. The biker extricated himself from the mangled steel pretzel that had once been his prized Harley, and the old man had fared even worse. He lay groaning before the black and smoking remnant of his moped. Even the hardened biker was moved with compassion. He knelt beside the old man's face and said softly, is there anything I can do for you? The old man choked, coughed, and replied, yes, because you please unhook my suspenders from your handlebars. <laughs> Ken Davis said, you and I would never purposely hook ourselves to anything dangerous, and yet many of us will lean over for a closer look. The world around us is littered with the mangled lives of men and women who never intended to get hooked. They only intended to get a closer look at the shiny colors of some forbidden sin. A husband who never intended to lose his family but flirted around the borders of adultery and now pulls himself from the wreckage 
of a smoking marriage, a businessman or woman, and it goes on and on. There is a proclivity when you're stuck to get a closer look at things God has never called us to. And in our relational world, there are things that feel good. The Bible says stolen water is sweet for a season. And most of us know that even though the grass is greener on the other side, there's always a lot of crabgrass there. And so we need to be careful in seasons where we're stuck. If we're stuck in work, people are tempted to move, and sometimes that's God and sometimes it's not. As I said, if you move, you're going to bring you with you so the problem isn't erased. The same thing with relationships, the same thing with God. People drop out of church. It's the same thing. As we're going through this, remember, God is a good God. Seek him and you will find, knock and it will be open. It might not happen today. It might not happen in January. But I believe God will get you out of your stuckness. I really do. If you seek first the kingdom of God, he will add all these things to you.